Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cutterback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, household and family life, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third-order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cutterback also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, where he provides a weekly Wednesday quote in reflection on some aspect of the good life. Dr. Cutterback, an avid gardener and hunter, is happy to make a household with his family and children in the Shenandoah Valley. He's a frequent speaker for the ICC as well as one of our Macula Apostolate professors. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. John Cutterback. Well, good evening, everybody. That's uh, great to be here with you. I am um, happy to share with you the triumph of man over technology. As I, I'm, I'm still trying to uh, get by without GPS, it's uh, getting tougher and tougher, but driving, uh, driving in, uh, just before I got to the Beltway, all those overhead signs as you're coming east started to just say, all lanes blocked. Um, and, and, and I could tell from what I heard on the radio that it was just before here. So in any case, I had to go back to my younger days of, of when I went to Catholic U and I, and I lived, I lived um, down towards uh, Glebe and North Pershing. So I had, to, I had to go through the files. And in any case, I zipped off to Route 50, came over 50, and came up Glebe. And so I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. Um, um, everybody else, of course, see, I mean, I, I don't know how people do this. They're like driving and looking at this thing at the same time. And, and uh, I'm just going along talking to Jesus. But um, um, that, that sounded like Father Sabatino right there, didn't it? OK, all right. Um, so I, they're probably talking to Jesus too. I didn't. I didn't mean. I didn't make it sound like I think I'm more holy or something. But I'm just. Um, I, at times, I, I, I worry. Um, speaking of worrying, no. Um, as I was preparing for this lecture, I thought, you know, this might just be one of those instances of the Peter principle, where someone's been promoted beyond his level of competence to figure out how to present faith. You know. Father Hezekiah just said, you know, just, just give a lecture on faith. <laughs> so I've um, had the blessing to be going through carefully uh, St. Thomas on faith 
and I'm very excited to share with you what I have found. And uh, please do know beforehand that uh, I, I'm just picking a few highlights, and um, I think that you'll appreciate it. That my main focus in looking at faith is going to be how does a God who has decided to share his own life with rational creatures, how does a God go about making that happen? I realized the more that I read St. Thomas on faith, that it really is fundamentally about preparing man for eternal life. It's that simple. And so I'm going to have that be my entire focus, this astounding gift that God gives us, which I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is, how we might exercise it. The entire point of this gift is that he might share his life with us. So here's the plan. A couple things on what is faith. So I'm going to introduce to you the notion of a theological virtue in general in order to do that, and then look at a few basic things specifically about faith. Then my second part is what I call the challenge and the glory of being a learner. The challenge and the glory of being a learner. Another uh, a Latinate word for a learner is a disciple. And then the third section I'm calling what to do. And I have three quick points under there, pray, teach, and witness. So again, three parts of the lecture, what is faith? the challenge and the glory of being a learner, and what to do. So let's jump right in. If you have a, a handout, that's grand. If you don't, I'm going to read it out loud, uh, the quotations out loud in any case, but I will be referring you to quotations there as we go. Most all the quotations I'm going to refer to are from St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic and common doctor of the church. Then. I put some miscellaneous quotations from some fathers of the church on a couple of really neat passages in scripture about faith that we might not be able to talk about those. So first of all, a theological virtue. I want, I want to give you a little bit of background to appreciate this one of the three theological virtues. What is a virtue? Most of you already know. It's a habit, habit in the sense of a quality of the soul. It's a habit in the sense of a special quality of the soul that's a disposition to act in a certain way. So a habit is, is, is a quality of the soul that perfects man unto his happiness. So in, in, any virtue is going to be this quality of the soul, this disposition in the soul, that's going to perfect us in some way unto our happiness. St. Thomas makes this point when he's introducing theological virtues because then he says we need to recognize right away that God is calling us creatures to a supernatural happiness. So the, the fascinating thing here is St. Thomas is a, is a great master of the distinction between nature and grace. You can look at what a human being is by nature and you can talk about what our happiness would be just by being this kind of thing. 
And that's where Aristotle can be an incredible teacher for us because Aristotle had such a great vision of what it means to be human. And of course, you'll recall perhaps that Aristotle, understanding as he did what it means to be human, came to that fundamental insight, which is really just one of the most glorious of all, that being virtuous is to be happy. Happiness is not simply to be seen as the reward for being virtuous, rather in being virtuous. This is the flourishing, the completion, the perfection, the beatitude of what it means to be human. And so St. Thomas Aquinas, what Aristotle holds to be human happiness is, as it were, what human happiness would be if we were just what God made us to be according to our nature. But amazingly, it turns out that God created this astounding nature, but he always had in mind that he would call it to a perfection that transcends what it could naturally have done. And this is going to be our supernatural beatitude. One thing that, that we do well to appreciate here is every now and then it's good to recognize something that God can't do. It's not because there's anything wrong, but just in understanding reality, we can see that there's certain things that God can't do. God can't make something. God can't create something to which it would be natural to live his life. I'm going to say that again. God can't create something to which, for which it would be natural to that kind of thing to live his life. Only God can live his life as what is natural to him. So, if God is going to call anything else to live his life, it will have to be a supernatural calling. He will have had to make some nature, which then he supernaturally calls to say, I am going to empower you to live my life as a supernatural end. This is what he does for us. This is what he does for the angels. It is not natural for the angels to live God's life with him. That is a supernatural beatitude for them too. Note, they, the angels, were created and they were offered grace they also had to have faith at the beginning. And now those who accepted the Lord's invitation now are living a supernatural beatitude with God in heaven. So the fundamental structure is the same with human beings. Though our time of testing, our time of working towards that supernatural beatitude looks rather different than the angels does.
But what we need to see right up front is we have a happiness that would be natural to us, and that's all that Aristotle and the other great philosophers could have known about without an extra special divine revelation. But then we know by divine revelation that God has called us to the supernatural. Super just means above, above our nature, above anything our nature ever could have conceived of, above anything that our nature ever could have achieved. This is the happiness now to which he calls us. And so St. Thomas very simply says, if there is a supernatural beatitude, then there must be virtues that are fitted to that. So just as for Aristotle, the normal, normal virtues of which he speaks are the virtues that are the way that a human being achieves human happiness. Likewise, given the supernatural calling that God has given us, there must now be another kind of virtue, which will be the virtues by which one attains this supernatural beatitude. And those are the theological virtues. I give you a couple of quotations on your sheet. This first quotation is basically going to say what I just said, or rather I should say I'm saying what it is saying. For we all learn from a teacher, which will be the whole point today. Quote, and because such happiness surpasses the capacity of human nature, man's natural principles, which enable him to act well according to his capacity, do not suffice to direct man to this same supernatural happiness. Hence, it is necessary for man to receive from God some additional principles, whereby he may be directed to supernatural happiness, even as he is directed to his connatural end by means of his natural principles, albeit not without divine assistance. Note, even there, God is there assisting us, even on the natural level. Such like principles are called theological virtues. I was going to give three neat reasons why they're called theological. The word theological, of course, coming from the uh, Greek word for God. First, because their object is God, inasmuch as they, these three theological virtues, direct us aright to God. Secondly, because they are infused in us by God alone. Thirdly, because these virtues are not made known to us, save by divine revelation contained in holy writ. So three reasons that theological virtues are theological. Their object is God. They're always about God. They direct us to God. Secondly, they're infused in us by God. And third, we couldn't even know about them were God not to tell us about them. Second quotation. Now the object of the theological virtues is God himself who is the last end of all. Again, end there means perfection. The, com the completion that makes sense of everything that has led up to it. The last end of all as surpassing the knowledge of our reason. So key here is what we must focus on if we're going to understand why there must be faith is that God has called us to a happiness which we could not possibly understand just by our human reason. This is the fundamental issue. God is calling us to a happiness 
our very life. The life which in reality he has made us for. It's, it's, it's astounding to think God never intended that our happiness would only be a natural happiness. Again, I remind you, he could not make us except that our natural happiness would be something that would fall short of what he wanted to give us. This, the fundamental reality is he wants to share his life with us. It's the divine friendship. It's all about that supernatural life that we could not conceive of or achieve. I'm at my third quotation. First, and this is, this is where he's going to start to differentiate the three theological virtues so we can start to move towards narrowing in on faith. First, as regards the intellect, man receives certain supernatural principles which are held by means of a divine light as opposed to a natural light or the natural light of reason. So that these principles, they will be held by our mind, but they will be held by our mind by a divine light. These are the articles of faith about which is faith. So already I invite you to start to feel the power here of this astounding gift that these things that we're going to speak of ourselves as knowing, as holding by faith, are things that can only be held if we are already beginning to participate in a divine light that is shining in us whereby we begin to see these things. Fourth quotation has to do with the order of the three th theological virtues, and we're not going to be talking about hope and, and charity except very obliquely in, in passing. Now it is by faith that the intellect apprehends the object of hope and love. Hence, in the order of generation, faith precedes hope and charity. So this is where he's saying the first of the three theological virtues, not the first in the sense of the greatest in perfection, greatest in perfection. Ultimately, charity will be more perfect, but faith comes first in the order of generation. The act of faith is prior to the act of charity. Quotation five is going to help us see that a little bit more. Wherefore, just as friendship with a person would be impossible, he chose this example, of course, very intentionally. Wherefore, just, just as friendship with a person would be impossible if one disbelieved in or despaired of the possibility of their fellowship or familiar colloquy, conversation. So too, friendship with God, which is charity, is impossible without faith, so as to believe in this fellowship and colloquy with God, and to hope to attain this fellowship. Therefore, charity is quite impossible without faith and hope. There's a bit more that, one, that he could have done there to show how faith has to come first. How can one live in friendship with someone? He's saying, unless you have faith that you could have that friendship. Of course, he could have gone further and said, unless by faith you have started to know this person. All right, let's start to look at a few more basics now about faith. First thing I'd like to look at is its object with a habit we will often speak of the object of that habit. God is the object of the habit, but we're going to make a little bit of a distinction because he's the object of this habit and act. 
in two ways. God is both what we know and faith, and he is also the reason for our knowing it. This is often uh, explained with some rather complicated terminology, which I'm going to dispense with the technical terminology of the formal object and the material object. And if, if, if any of these particular things, you don't get it exactly straight, that's okay. That's okay. We're just going to do our best and we'll just keep moving along. God is both what we know in faith, and he is also the reason for our knowing it. In other words, what we're knowing in faith, because of course faith is a kind of knowledge, what we're knowing is various truths about God. And we are knowing them precisely because God who is trustworthy is telling us. So there's two ways, as it were, then, that God is involved here. Faith is both knowing something about God, but he's also the reason that you can have this knowledge because, again, the point here, any instance of faith, as we're going to see here in, in a moment, is going to be holding something as true on the authority and the word of another. We're going to point out here in a moment that there's faith operative in our life very often. It doesn't, we don't just have supernatural faith and theological faith. Faith is any time we are holding something as true on the authority of somebody else. Right here, we are talking about the highest and by far most important kind of faith. So in this case, the faith that we're talking about is one of the theological virtues. It's always going to be about God or the things of God, and it's going to be a knowledge that is precisely because our intellect can say, because God is saying this, we know that this is true. Again, most of the things that we'll be knowing there are about God himself, but there are other things that have to do with our journey to God that he also needs us to know, that we could not know by the light of natural reason, which we will have to know by faith. So it's not always just something about God. It will be either about God or about our path to God, such as, for instance, truths about heaven or about the angels we can also know by faith. A little bit more going more deeply into this object of faith. The object of faith is something that is not seen. Now, seen is being used here not as something that is seen with one's eyes, but as a term that's being used analogously for something that the intellect does. If we are holding something as true by faith, that means, St. Thomas explains, that we do not see it intellectually in the sense that this truth is not evident to our intellect of itself. When you hold the truth 2 plus 2 equals 4, that truth of that proposition is immediately evident. It is seen by our intellect, right? Two plus two equals four. When you know that is true, you see the truth of that. And again, we're not talking about a visual thing. We're talking about your intellect is able to grasp the truth of that right in the very thing itself. 
I don't need something else to lead me towards that. I'm able to grasp that truth. It is visible, as it were. It is intelligible to my intellect right there in itself. So many things that we know, we know because the truth of whatever it is in question is something that is able to be grasped by our intellect directly. In the case of faith here, the object is not seen to be true in that sense. It is known to be true, but it is known to be true because, again, of the authority, the trustworthiness of someone who is telling us that it is true. And so, amazingly here, there's a very beautiful aspect of the acts of faith is that St. Thomas says there needs to be an act of the will involved in the act of faith. The act of faith itself is an act of our intellect grasping something. But our will has to get involved and say, as it were, though the intellect cannot see the truth in itself, the will chooses. I will hold this as true. I can know this is true because of the authority and the trustworthiness of the one who is telling it to me. But the will has to get involved to empower the intellect to do that. Again, the intellect of itself is not able to grasp that very truth. Remember, these are truths that are beyond our reason. So we have this special situation where in themselves, and just, just consider the truth of God being a trinity. This is beyond our being able to grasp by our intellect, by the light of natural reason. So there is involved here in believing that, that our will says, I choose to believe that. Now, with very good reason, on the authority of one whose authority is absolutely trustworthy and who is saying to me that this is so, I therefore conclude and thus know by faith that it is so. I give you then a definition of faith. Number six on the handout. Faith is a habit of mind whereby eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect assent to what is non-apparent. Now that non-apparent, another way of saying that would be non-seen. In other words, it must be something that is not immediately evident to the intellect, otherwise it would not be an object of faith. So faith is a habit of mind, whereby eternal life has begun in us. Now, we're going we're gonna to keep coming back to this, and I go back to my opening point. One of the really th neat things we're going to start to see more as we proceed is the very things that are being presented to us to believe are the things that God is saying to us, these things that now I ask you to believe are the things which one day when they become apparent to you, when they become finally seen, in them will be your happiness. 
That is why he can say here that eternal life itself begins in us now in faith because the things, the seeing of which will be unending beatitude are the very things which now we can begin to hold as true on faith. I'm going to read you a quotation, seven at the bottom of the first page. To faith, those things in themselves belong, the sight of which we shall enjoy in eternal life, and by which we are brought to eternal life. That's drawing out for you that great phrase I was just emphasizing of the whereby eternal life is begun in us. Moving along a little bit more here on faith itself and its object, St. Thomas has this great point where he asks, why is the faith expressed in articles and then gathered together into a creed? And this I found particularly helpful. The object of our faith is expressed especially in articles, which puts a priority on certain truths. The creed is a unique collection of the central truths of our faith. So the creed, we can start to see here then, is this astounding gift. I, it's so easy to miss this. And, and, I, and I'm particularly here, I'm, I'm hoping that from now on in any Sunday mass, is it interesting that also say if it's a solemnity, then in the liturgy, we say the creed. Why is it that we say the creed? Why is it that these particular truths were gathered together and put in this symbol of faith, as St. Thomas calls it, the creed? It's so powerful to think these are the ones that focus our attention in precisely on the ones that are most of all the beginning of eternal life and those things most necessary to get there. I'm at quotation number eight. And so it was necessary to gather a clear summary from the saying of Holy Writ to be proposed to the belief of all. This indeed was no addition to Holy Writ, but something taken from it. That's a classic reply to an objection where St. Thomas had raised an objection to himself where the objector was saying, why do we need to have a creed? Why wouldn't we just go to scripture? Does this add something to scripture? Why do we need a creed separate from scripture? Look at this, this beautiful explanation. So it's necessary to gather a clear summary from the saying of Holy Writ to be proposed to the belief of all. This indeed was no addition to Holy Writ, but something taken from it. So this, God gives us this great gift through his church to focus our attention on the most essential things, which are the content of our faith. Each week, then, at Mass, we have the opportunity to enunciate, to, as it were, rehearse again for ourselves and those around us, speaking with one voice. These are the things that we know to be true because we believe God. And we also believe that when we see these very things 
more fully, therein will be our happiness. The creed. A little bit more on the act itself, or we can do this very, very quickly. There's a couple quotations that are kind of summing up what we've already, what, already seen. To believe is an act of the intellect insofar as the will moves it to assent. The intellect of the believer is determined to one object, not by the power of reason itself, but by the will, which is saying, in view of the reliability of this person, this then must be held as so. Two more quick things about the object of faith that I would like to emphasize. One is it is the beginning of heaven, that what we know by faith, in fact, is the beginning of ultimately eternal life. Here's quotation number nine. Faith introduces eternal life into us, for eternal life is nothing else than to know God. Thus our Lord said, this is eternal life, to know thee, the, one, the only true God. This knowledge of God begins in us by faith and is perfected in the life to come when we shall know him as he is. Faith is the substance of things to be hoped for. The other thing I'd like to emphasize about faith before we go on to our next section is that a central object of our faith is divine providence. Is divine providence. Quotation number 10. To believe there is a God is to believe in one whose government and providence extends to all things. Whereas one who believes that all things happen by chance does not believe there is a God. Next, and more specifically than just that God is overseeing everything by his providence, we must therefore firmly believe that God governs and disposes not only the things of nature, but also the acts of men. May I pause here to say this, ladies and gentlemen, might be where, for you and me, the issue of faith and how strong our faith is or not, this is most of all where the rubber meets the road. I found it very fascinating that St. Thomas puts a priority on a fundamental thing, kind of a central aspect of believing in God, is believing that God oversees absolutely everything, right down to and including every single human action. And ladies and gentlemen, that includes sense, meaning that his providence is overseeing and ordering all. And so I'd like to suggest one of the things, of course, we need to recognize that our Lord said very often to his followers was, O you of little faith. If we are to do a little bit of a self-examination in view of the things that we've been talking about thus far, you might think, well, why would we ever need to accuse ourselves of being of little faith? I mean, we, we believe those things that are in the creed there, right? Well, I'd just like to kind of throw out at you, remember a couple of the times that our Lord said, oh, you little faith, such as when the disciples woke him up 
when the storm was going on, right? And there, as we say, freaking out, and, and, and they wake him up with this terrified look in their eyes, and what does he say? Oh, you of little faith. Why would he say that to them right then? Why were they of little faith? Now here, in interestingly, that had to do simply with his overseeing of the whole natural thing. Right now we're not even talking about having faith in his providence over human actions. Consider here the, the disciples, how are they falling short in faith? They're not acting like they believe that God oversees everything. They're getting terribly upset over this situation. So what does our Lord have to say to them? Oh, you of little faith. Do you believe in divine providence or not? Is a very powerful question in day-to-day -day life. It's very easy for you and me to say that we believe in divine providence when we're together at the ICC, right? When you're stuck in traffic, when you're in an accident, when, and go on and on and on. And let's be honest, we get angry. We get upset. We're pointing fingers. And frankly, do we not start to do the why would God do we believe in divine providence? How about another one? I'm going to read this to you again later. But I want to read it to you right now. This is Mark 9, 19 to 24. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. This is where there was a young man who was possessed. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often, this is the father speaking right now, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Imagine dealing with that with your child for many years. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now I'd like to challenge you here. I'm going to come back and read that to you again in a couple minutes. Is faith in divine providence here most of all about making sure that God heals the people we want him to heal? Have we not found that sometimes the person that we're praying to be healed does not get healed? Is that simply a lack of faith? 
I present for your consideration, it's not necessarily. Do we trust in God's divine providence? Even as we are going through the most difficult things and on our knees begging God for this or for that, I present for your consideration, faith very often means having complete confidence that God will answer our prayer according to what's best for us, not necessarily according to what we wanted. Do we believe in divine providence? So I just wanted to, to, to point out, I, I found it so powerful that St. Thomas points out that God's providence oversees everything is to be a central object of our faith. I wonder whether it is in that most of all that Christians will set themselves apart to show themselves to be people of faith, that we have complete confidence in God's loving providence. Next section is the challenge and the glory of being a learner. The challenge and the glory of being a learner. I'm going to read you from the sixth chapter of the Gospel of St. John to open this, and then it goes into St. Thomas's commentary on it. Everyone hath that hath heard of the Father and hath learned cometh to me. That's John 6:45. Everyone that hath heard of the Father and hath learned cometh to me. St. Thomas goes on to explain the following. Now man acquires a share of this learning, not indeed all at once, but by little and little, according to the mode of his nature. And everyone who learns must needs believe. In order that he may acquire science, that means more perfect knowledge, in a perfect degree, Thus also the philosopher Aristotle remarks that it behooves a learner to believe. Hence, in order that a man arrive at the perfect vision of heavenly happiness, he must first of all believe in God, as a disciple believes the master who is teaching him. That's the most important quotation of the evening, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize, I didn't put that on your handout. That's from question two, article three of the second part of the second part of the Summa in the treatise on faith. Question two, article three. I'm gonna read it to you again in a moment, and this is what's going on here. He is quoting a little understood aspect of Aristotle's worldview. Aristotle holds anyone who is going to be a student, anyone who is going to be a learner, must, if he is to be a good learner, must, if he is going to be docile, which means precisely able to be taught, has to be willing to believe. This is a natural level point, ladies and gentlemen. This is a beautiful point of how philosophy fits perfectly with revealed theology. He's quoting Aristotle, who says, students must believe. And what believe means here, as noted earlier, was taking something as true on the authority of the teacher. So what St. Thomas is arguing here is, this is an astounding point, that in our very nature is already a clue to why faith was gonna be the key in coming to our supernatural end. On the natural level, ladies and gentlemen, 
to really learn, to really grow in wisdom, you must be willing to be a disciple who takes certain things as true on the authority of your teacher. Aristotle insists, Plato, Socrates too. The difference between those who become wise, this is a very Socrates point, the difference between those who become wise and those who don't, in large part, is the difference between those who had the right teachers and who were docile enough to learn. This is so on the natural level. Then what St. Thomas is saying here is that very same point obtains on the supernatural level. Let me read to you again, and he's using the scripture to enforce this. Everyone that hath heard of the Father and hath learned cometh to me. So that's John 6, 45, St. Thomas. Now man acquires a share of this learning, not indeed all at once, but little by little, according to the mode of his nature. In other words, this is the way it always works in human knowing, he's saying. And everyone who learns must needs believe. In other words, he's saying that just naturally speaking. If you're going to be a learner, you have to always be willing to begin by being a believer in order that he may acquire science in a perfect degree. Thus also the philosopher remarks, it behooves a learner to believe. So hence, in the order that a man arrive at the perfect vision of heavenly happiness, he must first of all believe in God as a disciple believes the master who is teaching him. Ladies and gentlemen, this is to me a, a, a central point of the evening, and it's, it's not an an easy one, you might reasonably ask me this, and I'm only going to have so sufficient an answer for you. You might reasonably ask this, why is this the case on either the natural level or the supernatural level? Consider, this is what St. Thomas is saying. He's saying, given, I go back to my opening point of the night, given that God wanted to draw us, bring us to supernatural life with him, which is knowing God as God knows himself. That is supernatural beatitude, seeing God as God sees himself. Given that he wanted to bring us to that, the way that he begins is he doesn't just hand that to us. He's going to treat us according to our nature, and he's going to take us step by step by the hand. I begin by giving you this powerful infusion whereby you must trust me. You must begin by holding these things on faith. The things that I tell you now will be your happiness one day to see. You begin now by believing. Ladies and gentlemen, consider how this is the structure of human life. Has anyone seen this at all in parenting? Consider maybe one day a child circles back and says, remember all those things that you told me, some of which I was willing to hear and others not. Thank you, for I see now, had you not told me those things, where would I ever have been? Is this not the structure of how a human being comes into maturity 
a human being must be willing to take something on the authority of those that are above. And by that very same structure, this is how God, the Heavenly Father, is treating us as children. It is at the center of the Christian drama. God is a father, we are his children, and he is offering us the astounding gift of telling us what we need to know, but demanding that we hold it now by faith. And he does this because this is better for us. And you wonder, could God have created us where we began in the beatific vision. I, I don't think that St. Thomas would say there's any intrinsic contradiction to that, but it was better. And maybe by considering it, we will see more and more how that is the case. Maybe we need at first just to take that too on faith, that it is better that we must walk by faith and not by sight. God is always a teacher. I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, from my own limited experience as both a student and then on the other side as a teacher, when does being a student succeed? And when do your students succeed? Central to growing as a student, central when you see it from the other side also as a teacher. Are they willing to follow when they don't understand why? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you, we live in an age that absolutely rejects that. On the natural level, too, and that's part of the reason now that faith seems all the more far away. On the very natural level, our dominant philosophies, all of them reject that. Our dominant philosophies are either skeptical and thus think there isn't any higher truth to come to, so there's no reason to have some master, or is overconfident, and thus isn't willing to be subordinate and stand within a tradition and learn from the masters of the past. But here our Heavenly Father, He starts us with what we need. He starts us with what we can handle. I have some things I want to share with you. And at first, he says, you must simply believe me. Ladies and gentlemen, now is the time where we can actually offer God the glory of just trusting him. One day in heaven, that time will be past. In an age when so few people will give God the homage that is due to him in the form of taking him at his word. We have the privilege of being able to do so by his grace. But we say, but Lord, I can't see my way. It's hard for me to take you at your word. I can't see my way. Indeed, this is the point. Of course, you can't see your way, he might say, but can you hear my voice nonetheless? 
What does the Lord have to do that he has not done to bring about our faith in him? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. So is the Christian life. Okay, I'm going to wrap up now quickly with my three parts of the what to do. Pray, teach, witness. So, praying. Luke 17, 5. The disciples turn to our Lord and they say, Lord, increase our faith. So, based upon, I hope, a somewhat renewed appreciation for the astounding gift that God gives us in giving us the seeds of eternal life by giving us our first insights into the thing that will be our heavenly life with him. We ask for more. We beg him for more. We realize what a precious gift it is, and we pray like the disciples did, Lord, increase our faith. This is where I was going to read you, and I'm just going to read it quickly again, culminating in that incredibly beautiful prayer of that father. I just give you again Mark 19 to 24. He answered and said to him, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him into the fire, into the wall to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Ladies and gentlemen, I just I throw out at you, is it possible that some of those things that we wonder why they happen in divine providence... Is it possible that some of those things are God saying to us, take this opportunity, show me, show me that you believe in me. And maybe it showed that, show me that you believe in me by coming and begging me. You're begging me for whatever it is that you want so badly. Fine, come, show me that you trust in me. Ask me like you trust in me, and part of asking me like you trust me is understanding I will give it to you if it's what's best. For that's the only thing I ever do because I am your provident God. So perhaps those things in our life that we most wondered why in the world could God be doing this, it was precisely to grow our faith. Let us pray with that Father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Teach. I'm going to say this very briefly. First of all, a person of faith always wants to look more deeply into the faith. If we really believe, and we believe the things that we've been saying here about, about how the faith is the beginning of the things that will be our happiness in the next life, we want to look more deeply into it. And not only do we want to look more deeply into it by doing things like we're doing right now to try to understand these things better, but also then we're going to try to teach others. We all have occasions to teach, ladies and gentlemen, and I particularly here just want to focus our attention on, in view of what we're saying, how incredible 
what an incredible blessing it is to be able to help others, to teach others in some little way in the faith. Every parent, is that not a central thing that parents and grandparents, teachers of, of all kinds, when we note particularly those who are teaching in the catechetic mode, to be maybe the one who for the first time says truths in the name of God to little people or older people. Sometimes it's the most astounding when you're doing this with, with adults for the first time, hear the truths that it will be their unending life to contemplate. And we have the honor to be able to teach people that. I go to witness, ladies and gentlemen. Witness is what St. Thomas calls the outward act of faith. It's the proper outward act of faith. The word here is actually confession. And he says in the Summa that there are three outward confessions mentioned in Scripture. This will correspond to how you've heard this term used, confession of matters of faith. If you've ever heard saints called confessors, that's in this sense, confession as the act of faith. We confess the faith. We say it out loud with confidence. Confession of thanksgiving or praise and confession of sins. Those are all different ways that the Latinate word confession can be used. Confession of praise, confession of sins are not what we're talking about here. It's the confession in the sense of giving witness to our faith. Here's a couple of quick lines from St. Thomas on it. When do we confess? When God's honor and our neighbor's and our neighbor's good demands. Man should not be contented with being united by faith to God's truth, but ought to confess his faith outwardly. In other words, sometimes God's honor, sometimes our neighbor's good requires that we confess our faith, that we say out loud that we believe in things. And you and I know how hard that is. Here's a challenging one. In cases of necessity, where faith is in danger, everyone is bound to proclaim his faith to others, either to give good example and encouragement to the rest of the faithful or to check the attacks of unbelievers. You might, might, might be thinking right now, what, might that be a, a necessity with, with this danger to the faith? It seems to me if you're in a situation where someone's saying, surely nobody believes this. Right? If, we're, if we're standing right there and someone's saying, who, who could believe such things? Can a Christian stand by at that moment? Now's the time. Now's the time. To stand in silence would be to be complicit in it. There are times that we might be absolutely required, and those times, ladies and gentlemen, might not be far off, where we would be bound to speak forth, to confess publicly in front of others our faith. I conclude, ladies and gentlemen, with two things. I want to read you a very quick story about some martyrs that I just learned recently, and I'm going to share a quick word on the Eucharist, and we are done. I was just had the blessing to be in Oxford, and this, so this story will speak for itself, so I'm just going to quickly read you these couple paragraphs of this story. It was two priests, a young nobleman, and a Welsh-serving man who served in, in Oxford, who on July 5th, 1589, were martyred. And here quickly is what happened. On July 5th, Belson and Pritchard walked to the scaffold, but the two priests were dragged 
through the crowded streets tied to horse-drawn hurdles. Father Nichols was the first to be hanged and was not allowed to speak. Silently, he made the sign of the cross, mounted the ladder, raising the rope to his lips at each step and blessing it. Father Yaxley, second priest, two priests, one's a young nobleman, one is an uneducated servant. Father Yaxley, the younger priest, whose youth, good looks, and noble bearing deeply moved the onlookers, did the same, kissed his friend's corpse, asked for his prayers. Belson, young nobleman, followed, lovingly clasped the two bodies before the latter was taken away from under him. Finally, Pritchard, the uneducated servant, finally Pritchard mounted the scaffold and addressed the crowd. It's interesting they wouldn't let the, the ones who were educated speak. They wouldn't even give them the common decency of letting them speak, which they always, would, in general, let people do at the end, right? But the uneducated one, they're going to let him speak. And he addressed the crowd. I beg all the people here present to bear witness in this world and on the day of judgment that I die because I am a Catholic, that is, a faithful Christian of Holy Church. An educated man from the crowd exclaims, Poor wretch, you say you die a Catholic, though in your ignorance you do not know what being a Catholic means. And that was a taunt because the man was uneducated. Pritchard replied, ready for this? Though I might not be able to tell you in words what it means to be a Catholic, God knows my heart, and he knows that I believe all that the Holy Roman Church believes, and that which I am unable to explain in words I am here to explain and attest with my blood. That, ladies and gentlemen, that heritage is yours and mine. I conclude with a very brief meditation on the Eucharist, ladies and gentlemen. One might almost wonder, in making the sacrament of the Eucharist, did our Lord just push things one step too far? Could he reasonably expect educated people to believe this? I mean, is, isn't it just kind of astounding? I mean, think about that for a second. I'll just take the form of a piece of bread. I. Can we really believe that? What was our Lord thinking? Well, I don't know what he was thinking. But I wonder whether if we look honestly, this is the most amazing instance of how a divine wisdom orders all things sweetly, bringing together so much in so many ways. Is it possible that herein he actually found a way that at one and the same time he could do all the following things? He could leave us and go and prepare a place for us so that we might grow by his absence, calling for the hidden work of the Holy Spirit in his absence, but also even while absent, that he would be present because our God couldn't bear to be away. But he knew he had to be away. He had to be absent for us, for our sake, but he also knew that he must somehow be present because our God delights to be among men. And so he'd be present and also at the same time to give us perhaps the most unique opportunity to believe, to take something that you never possibly 
could have for any reasonable reason have thought he would do. But we take as so just because he says so. I give you, to close, a couple of verses of our teacher, St. Thomas, in his Eucharistic hymn. Listen to what he has to say. Adoro te devote, latens deitas, que sub his figuris, figuris veri latitas, tibi se cor meum totum subicit, quia te contemplans totum deficit. I adore you devoutly, hidden God. You who are truly there beneath these, these strange veils, these figures, to you nonetheless, my heart completely subjects itself, though it totally fails in being able to see you. Visos tactus gustus in te falitur, sed auditus solo tuto creditur, credo quid quid dixit dei filius, nil hoc verbo veritatis verius. Vision, taste, touch, they're all, what else do we have? They're all fooled. Hearing alone can be safely believed. I believe whatever, credo quid quid, I believe whatever the Son of God says. What word could be more true than the word of truth? In cruce tebat sola deitas at hic latet simul let humanitas ambotamen credens aque confitens peto quod petivit latro penitens. Every one of these is about faith, really quickly. On the cross, on the cross, only the very Godhead was hidden. We still saw your humanity. Here, your humanity, too, is hidden. But I nonetheless believe and I confess both, and I'll pray what the penitent thief prayed. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, Jesu quem velatum nunc aspicio, oro fiat illud quod tam sitio. Ut te revelata cernens facie, visus symbiatus tue gloriae. Amen. I pray for that for which I so thirst, that your face finally revealed, I might be blessed by the vision of your glory. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, questions and answers. Who's first? I'm curious to know why is it not called like the theological virtue of trust and the difference between trust and faith? That's a great question. And I'm working on that myself. I don't have a perfect answer for you for that. I think that... Part of what we mean by trust comes under faith, but I think that part of what we mean by trust can also come under hope. And so I, I think it depends exactly on what we mean there. But I, I'm going to put it to you this way. The thing that I was particularly focusing on as regards having faith in divine providence. I think that what you're calling trust, if it isn't the very faith itself in divine providence, it's the immediate fruit of it. If we really 
believe that all things are working together for our good, if we really believe that this is always part of a loving plan, then we trust. I mean, it seems to me that that part of what we mean, the heart of what we mean by trust is precisely that really firm belief. No, I, I really do believe it. And I believe it in such a way that I'm going to act upon it. And, and, and it's an outstanding question because I think very often when our Lord said, Oh, you of little faith, it seems to be kind of conveying you weren't trusting. But he's saying, Oh, you of little faith. And so I do think that a central thing there that we capture in the term trust it is this kind of fullness of faith. It's, it's believing in such a way that it informs what we do. So that is where we are right now. And so I'd say when we're praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I really think that is a prayer for a deeper trust. So thank you for that question. Uh, Professor, this question's coming in from Carmen. She's asking, uh, you would mention how just on the natural level as well, there's this element of trust or belief and knowledge. Do you have any kind of tips in trying to, when you're in conversation with somebody who's naturally skeptical, let's say, is there an easy demonstration to prove this uh, truth that even natural reason has an element of trust in it? Um, no. I don't think there's an easy way to prove that. Uh, witness, for instance, the father of modern philosophy, Descartes, I think fundamentally didn't see it. And you know, if it were something that was simply easy to prove, and I'm not saying there aren't things that, that we could point to. First of all, we certainly can note how commonly we are, in fact, believing people about all kinds of things as regards um, our own origin, our parents, where I was born, as I'm driving around the Beltway and I pass the uh, Holy Cross Hospital in, in Silver Spring, Maryland, I always you know, think, oh, this is, this is where I was born. I have no proof whatsoever that I was born there other than that my mother told me, and I believe what my mother tells me. It's interesting, if you look at human life, um, practically speaking, in the practical areas of life, we are constantly taking something on the word of people that we trust. Now, the interesting thing is that I, I, probably much, I think people are going to see that, but then when it comes over to coming towards wisdom, I, there is a terrible temptation that we humans have to not be humble, to have too much confidence in ourselves. And this is why this heart of Socratic wisdom is recognizing our ignorance and recognizing that we need to turn to others to help us overcome that ignorance. And so really, this is a proverbial thing. In other words, picture that really quickly. I mean, picture the parent. How often does a parent, and it's very similar with a teacher too, find yourself in a situation where you're, you're very frustrated because you're just thinking, what do I have to do to try to show you that you should be taking me at my word, that you know not of what you speak. But it's particularly the immature mind finds that very difficult to grasp. So there's a moral disposition there that has to be cultivated. We have to be willing to, to uh, again, 
humble ourselves. So I, I, I don't have an easy way other than I, I finally I'd say turning tra tradition, turning to all those who have truly become wise, the truly wise, ask them. They will make this clear. They have learned this. Go. Thank you, doctor. I was curious. I was struck by the phrase um, when you said, it is better for us to come to God by faith rather than sight. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what I gathered. Um, so my question is, why is it that God reveals himself through, on occasion through miraculous visions? I'm thinking specifically of the transfiguration, but I'm sure there are other examples. If I have this question, I would just say, I put it to you this way. It's always ultimately about vision. That was one way I thought of o opening the, the, the entire lecture. It's always ultimately about vision. Faith will pass away. Our Lord never had faith. Our Lord did not walk by faith. He walked by sight. Vision is always the goal. I, I quickly, it's very important for clarifying something that in, in teaching, the point of the learner's believing is to bring him to the point where then finally he will see. That's why I ended with St. Thomas saying his prayer is, please grant me that for which I so thirst that finally I will see you face to face. The, the entire pedagogy order of teaching of God is always about bringing us to vision. But there's this aspect of his way of bringing us to vision is that we walk by faith. Faith is for the sake of sight. It, maybe would I understand it better? I'd be able to explain it to you. Right now, I just have confidence. God wouldn't have asked the faith of us if it weren't ultimately better for the vision that's coming that we believe now. This is what I meant then, and this is why you wrote, I didn't say exactly what you said, but that's why you wrote down what you said, because it is, it's close enough. I was saying, in his plan, he wants us to believe as a way, ultimately, of preparing us for the vision. Why did God make it that children are children? It's a gift. There's not something wrong. He wanted it to be, a, as St. Thomas said, a little by little. So, think, look at our Lord's example of the transfiguration. It was quick, it was passing, and it was just the three of them. He wasn't making a point of going overboard on showing too much. He wanted to be instilling faith. And then, and then when he thought that, well, okay, they're going to need a little extra boost there, preparing for the crucifixion, and so he gives them this extra. But it was ultimately to increase their faith. Even what they saw in the transfiguration was nothing compared to what's actually there. So it's always, I, I, I say to you with confidence, and a great question that we need to keep meditating and praying about, it's always about coming ultimately to vision, but in this life he wants to increase our faith. And so if we're in the darkness, we need to trust him. It's about coming to see in the light, but right now he needs us to believe. He needs us to trust in order to get us more surely to where he wants us to go. That, that was a great question. Well, I have a question considering about, you know, God's providence, you were saying, and trust. But what about it's when everything goes fine, it's okay. But I know a person who lives in Venezuela who's dying of cancer, who had cancer again, whose children are out of the country, who cannot go see her. So she's alone with her husband with hardly any medicines, hardly any food, hardly anything. Her faith is going downhill big time. I talk, try to talk to her sort of, and she's just 
really despairing. And I understand. So how can you tell? You cannot tell it's God's right. will. Or I mean, how do you trust God when everything? I mean, everything goes wrong. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to say first of all, it, it's a challenge to you too, isn't it? You don't know what to say to this person. It's it's overwhelming. I, I know it's going to be hard for me to say this, but but I'm going to say. Note how it's even a gift to you, too, that this person is suffering in that way. This is where we must believe. And all I can say is, in, in humility, let us pray together. Lord, increase our faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And, and you find yourself thinking, what would I do if I were that person where all those things are going bad? I, I don't know what I would do. God's not giving you the grace at the moment for something that he's not calling you to, but you pray fervently for that person, right? What, what can we say other than to try to be with the person and try to suffer it with that person? There's not going to be an argument. Oh, come on, surely this is just a gift of divine providence, right? You know, snap up. I mean, such a thing is, 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 is absurd. So this is where he calls us like that father. All I can say is we see it in scripture. That father was desperate. And he came to the Lord and he was weeping. And it was a time where his heart was opened to our Lord. We've, you see it again and again. I was just talking to someone. I know sometimes it pushes someone, pushes someone the other way. I mean, the, the mystery of freedom. We have to just pray and try to be there together. And you must keep, this is a time for you to grow in your faith and me to grow in my faith. Our God is good. If you, have you seen the movie, by the way? There's a beautiful movie that's made about the football called Greater. And I was to say, our God is greater. It's 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 a Christian it's a Christian film. It's very well done. It's a true story. But in, in any case, ma'am, Lord, increase our faith. We have to pray, and we have to pray for that person. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.